Pop Culture Affidavit Episode 96, The Uncollecting. Welcome to episode 96 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So I'm inching closer to episode 100, and for this one I thought I would actually shine a light on something else I've been doing in the world of blogging, which is called The Uncollecting. This is a blog that I started in January, and that is... January of 2019 for anyone who's listening to this a ways down the road. And uh, this blog is cataloging, as the subtitle says, One Nerd's Effort to Let Things Go. I'm going to go more in depth about the blog and its mission in a moment, but first I'll note what's on it, which is a combination of reviews and personal reflections, and you can find all of it at theuncollecting.com. This all came about because, you see, I realized as I was getting into the latter part of 2018 that I simply had way too much stuff. Furthermore, I have way too much stuff that I simply bought but not actually consumed. So what I decided to do was tally up all of those things and chronicle my efforts to get through them. This includes long boxes full of comics, piles of unread books, an entire Netflix queue full of unwatched movies, and an iPod full of unlistened to podcasts. For those who haven't been on the blog at all, here's, was, here's what I was starting with. I had 131 unread books, 155 movies to watch, 156 podcast episodes to listen to, and 738 comic book back issues to read. Even looking at that now as I record it, I'm almost overwhelmed by how much I simply had accumulated and not used. The comics were especially alarming. I'm usually really good about reading what I buy when I buy it, but how can I have 738 comics that I bought and just stashed away? Like I said, I'm spending my time reviewing all of these things as I work my way through them. Right now, I've only written reviews of some books and a ton of comics, and I keep meaning to review the podcast that I'm listening to, but I've also set a mandate that I will not buy any more media until I hit the zero point, or at least through 2019. I'm trying what I can to do this make a, make this a zero-sum game here. And with everything that I have going, I rate it on a scale of keep, sell, donate, or trash, a scale that I adopted from what is one of the inspiration or pop culture guides to this project, which was a 2007 episode of the Oprah Winfrey show that put a spotlight on hoarding. And that's where the uncollecting and pop culture affidavit intersect. 
I'll talk more about my personal project and feelings about it later, but what I want to do first is take you back through four pieces of popular culture that I have kind of used as guideposts so far. Three television shows and a YouTube series. And I'll do that after this break. Hey there, welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from, and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on the Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, the Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. Okay, Rich, you go first. in here? Could you possibly get any more stuff in here? I'm thinking that this is just completely out of control. So I am not entirely sure how I wound up watching this episode of Oprah back in 2007. I either saw it when it was first run, which is highly unlikely because I was probably at work when it aired, I saw com- or I saw a commercial for it and I taped it, or maybe Amanda and I caught it in a rerun, which is possible. At any rate, the show is framed as a rather dramatic look at a house crammed with stuff. The adult children of a woman who has gone beyond just being a shopaholic into full-blown hoarding have sent a tape into the show's producers begging them to hold some sort of intervention. Oprah does so by having a camera crew and Peter Walsh, who is kind of a professional organizer, walk through the house, assess the situation, and then working with the woman and her family they solve the problem, or at least attempt to solve the problem. I found several clips of the episode on YouTube, courtesy of the OWN channel. And by the way, Old Oprah Shows is a YouTube rabbit hole that is incredibly tempting to fall down. And I may have to do a deeper dive into that one day. But watching this, watching this about like, you know, almost 13 years later, I really felt for the children of the woman who was this hoarder. The youngest, her daughter, talks about how the hoarding was getting bad when she moved out a few years prior. And now that she's gone, it's reached a point beyond a critical mass. The oldest son is both angry and upset while he's looking at all of the mess during the tour of the house. He says he's completely wiped out just by seeing it. The middle child is beside himself most of the time, and you can tell that they're all at their wits end. They've tried everything over the years, so it's not their first attempt at trying to get through to their mother and say, hey, look, you have a problem. And you can also tell that they've given up, too. Maybe not altogether, but at one point or another. 
And um, it, I think it took some effort to get all three of them there. I think one or two of them had really stopped talking to the woman. And uh, they're all pretty much going to call it quits if this doesn't work. So they walk through the house. And the walk through the house is pretty horrifying. You've got bags and bags and bags of clothes and under items underneath, which are large pieces of furniture. I, I mean, they probably haven't seen the light of day in years. I mean, the finished basement had a pool table, and you couldn't see the pool table. And as you watch the show, you have to ask yourself, how does something get this bad? And the answer is obviously pretty complicated. I mean, I'm not going to completely play armchair psychologist here. You know, I did take a semester of psychology in high school. But um, I will say that there's obviously some sort of mental health issue going on, whether it's a need to hang on to something or feeling a void or OCD. But there's also other indicators that the woman at the center of this mentions in interviews. She does her fair share of couponing. She'll buy things just because they're on sale. She grew up poor, and uh, now that she can afford to buy things, she wants to exercise the ability to do so. It started small, but then it grew over the years to the point where this was just her life now. I can understand all of that, too, especially that last one, because that's kind of what was happening to me. You know, it starts as one cent box sale, and before you know it, you've hit three or four of them buying up comics just because you've got a $20 bill in your hand, and that's money to burn. And I'm not saying that it's gotten to the point where I can't even walk through my own house, but I'm definitely a slob when it comes to one of other things, especially the spare bedroom in our house that is the office. Anyway, back to Oprah. So they go through the house, and they bring the woman in, and she has an on-camera breakdown right in front of Peter Walsh. That is this incredibly emotional moment, because you feel like she's finally starting to understand what's going on. And when you're watching it, you might have the instinct to ask, how could she not realize that this was the situation? But I would say again that I think that's why something like an intervention happens. She was so used to everything being the way it was and feeling that all of the stuff had some sort of value and that this was normal. F furthermore, she didn't want to listen to her kids. And I can imagine that she felt that her authority was being challenged, and that's why she didn't want to listen to her kids. I think it sometimes takes an outsider with no baggage or knowledge of you or your situation to point these things out, which is why people like Oprah or Peter Walsh or whoever come in and they, you know, they, they talk to these people. And Walsh, by the way, is really good on the show. He's blunt, but he's not in that irritating Dr. Phil way. You can also tell that he cares about the people working for him, even while he's more or less putting on a show for the family and the camera. By which I mean there's a whole segment where he fills a literal two-room warehouse full of all of the stuff that was taken out of the house. And he puts a curtain between the two rooms, and he takes everybody down in this whole, like, you thought that this was everything, but wait, there's more, and it's much, much worse. You know, it's a sort of spectacle. I mean, he's definitely playing it up for the camera, but man, it, it, you, you should see how it hits these people. It, it hits them really, really hard because, you know, it's stacked floor to ceiling in the house, and it's like, I think they said like 30,000 square feet of stuff in like a 2,400 square foot house or whatever, you know, just like to give you that sort of image but it's literally it's like they filled like a walmart full of her stuff it's just goes on for aisles and aisles and aisles and this was all in this house but what, what i really really appreciate and i've seen this on other shows is that he work he he takes the woman 
whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, but he he has her work on her own decluttering, which is an obvious tactic, I guess, but it makes that logical sense. I mean, Oprah could have just paid to have a crew more or less bulldoze their way through the place, but that would do nothing except to give this person a fresh canvas upon which to dump more stuff. So she winds up taking some ownership, and Walsh has her sort things into the piles of keep self donated trash which is where i got the rating system for my blog granted i have a slight variation in that i'm consuming all of these things and then deciding if they're worth holding on to but the principle is the same slow down consider what you have consider what you want or need and then make the decision slowing down and considering the moment and what's there is actually uh, really important and it's a really important theme of this episode and, and it's, it's pretty tough when she's in the middle of doing all the sorting, she becomes overwhelmed because there's so much and so many decisions to make. I understand this moment. I'm always faced with decision paralysis, and I having to be in that moment and really consider what's there can be overwhelming, and way overwhelming the, the quickness of buying yet another shirt that's on sale or something like that. I mean, we accumulate because it's easy, and we've been conditioned to buy to do that because of our culture. You know, so much of our lives, at least in, in modern day America, centers around acquiring more stuff. I'm pretty sure George Carlin had like an entire stand-up bit about this. And speaking of stuff, the warehouse scene, and it's, it's it, like I said, it's this big TV moment and it does its job well. And, and even I got overwhelmed watching it. It's just like, because we, when you see it all spread out there and then you you go back and you flash back to the 3,000 square foot house it was in. It's just like, holy shit. And then you're like, what are we going to do with all of this? And that's where the woman, like, in the episode, the mother, has an emotional breakdown as she goes through the warehouse. It is in Oprah parlance, her aha moment. And it is a genuine aha moment, too. Her kids are there with her, and you can tell that she... The gravity of everything is hitting her. Like, she's not performing for the camera here. She's not, like, you know, playing lip service because she has to look good. It's it's, And it's not just the fact that she had so much stuff. It's just... It, it hits home that it came between her and her children and prevented her from seeing her grandchildren. In a 2013 Where Are They Now update, she talks about how it made a difference in her life and for what it's worth. It, it kind of gives us a happy ending. I tried to do a little bit of Googling um, since then, since it's been six years since the Where Are They Now. I want to say, sadly, her husband may have passed at some point. Um, I only had so much information to go by, and I was doing it on my planning period, so I apologize for not doing as thorough as research as I usually try to do on these topics. Now, after the Oprah episode aired, there were a few cable television shows that looked at issues of hoarders and hoarding. I don't know if Oprah inspired them or if they were just simply something the producers of like A&E and TLC and these other channels thought would make for good reality TV. But we did soon get hoarders. We got hoarding buried alive, you know, those types of shows. And as much as I remember the Oprah show and as much as it obviously still resonates with me, I couldn't get into those. I think part of it was because it didn't have the gravitas that Oprah usually brings to such serious topics. And I also think those shows actually tend to get pretty gross. Now, during the Oprah episode, Peter Walsh found boxes of pasta that had molded on the floor of one of the rooms, and he pointed out how things like that quickly become health hazards. And you could actually end up condemning the house because of these things. You know, Thankfully, the show didn't go all in on the grossness, and the show was not... 
Uh, didn't, they didn't have to condemn the house either. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. But, man, some of those cable shows go for the gross spectacle. You see the mold. You see all the disgusting stuff. I also don't like watching hoarding shows where there's a lot of, like, rot, food, mold, or animal feces, or where people are hoarding animals. Um, I, I mean, cruelty to animals. I mean, it's... it's <laughs> cruelty to animals bothers me. Well, duh, Panneries. But it just... It's... I'm not a pet owner myself, but even then, like, I, I don't like seeing the idea of that happening to, to animals by somebody who is obviously has mental health issues and things, especially when the animals are obviously being mistreated. Um, so that's why I do tend to avoid the hoarder shows on A&E and TLC and all those channels. But one show that I did watch fairly regularly back in the early 2000s was on the now-defunct Style Network, and it was called Clean House. This show is basically a mashup of Trading Spaces and Hoarders. Uh, it was a lot lighter in tone. It was more fun. Uh, Niecy Nash, who you may have, remember from Reno 911, and she was she's recently been on the TNT drama Claws. Uh, she hosted. She brought with her a team that included a yard sale guru, an interior designer, a carpenter, and the carpenter uh, was... Actually, uh, Matt Eisman, who now hosts American Ninja Warrior. So there you go. But anyway, they do a profile of people who needed help. They would work with them to clear out their stuff. They would sell what they could. I think 1-800-GOT-JUNK was like a sponsor, so they'd haul away using them or something. And the show would match up to $1,000 of the proceeds from whatever yard sale they have, and then they would put that back into making the house look nicer. And then we'd have like a big reveal of what they did with the house. So like I said, it was kind of one of those quick rent home improving home improvement shows with, with the hoarding aspect. I did find an episode on YouTube. They, they aren't the easiest to come by. You can find some clips and things like that. One thing that did strike me about this and the next show I want to talk about is how sometimes the people on the shows are annoying and to the point of being insufferable. I didn't have that feeling with Oprah. And trust me, there have been plenty of insufferable guests on the Oprah Winfrey show over the years. But watching this, I can't tell if these people are mugging for the camera or if they're straight up that annoying. Tidying Up, the Netflix show that was popular earlier this year and probably will be popular when the next season rolls around, it's kind of the same way there. And if you're unfamiliar with that show, that's the one that's hosted by Marie Kondo. She's a Japanese organizing consultant. She does the same thing that Peter Walsh and Clean House did. She comes into a house, meets a family. She gets them organized. In Kondo's case, she actually just basically comes and tells them what they need to do and gives them homework. So the family does the most of the heavy lifting as opposed to like a crew that's hired. Now, she'll walk into the, the house and she'll assess the situation and what the show does is after she gives them homework, they follow the family or the couple over the course of the next few months while they get everything in order. Like Clean House, Tidying Up is a pretty gentle show with a lighter tone than Hoarders or Bettering Alive, and it doesn't have the seriousness of Oprah. It isn't afraid to go for sad moments, though. Uh, there's an episode where a woman who had lost her husband a number of years ago uh, was the person they were they were talking to and they were cleaning up after, or she was cleaning her house up. And uh, while there isn't a ton of clutter in the house, it's just him. He's everywhere. Like, his clothes are still there. His stuff is still there. So it's less about tidying up and, and organizing and really more about letting go and moving on. And it's really a tearjerker because the woman 
seems very very genuinely nice and likable. In fact, like she reminded me of like some of my friends' moms from like high school and stuff. And uh, I found myself rooting for her to really get better through this whole process. Now contrast that with the first episode of the series, which is I think is called Tidying Up with Toddlers. And the parents in the house that they're profiling are like totally entitled assholes. All right, it's a little harsh, but they're among a group of family, a couple of families on this show that really do behave like they have to overperform. And I have a feeling that they're not just doing it for the camera, like they're like that in everyday life. But hey, sometimes you just have to watch a show like this or say House Hunters just so that you could look at the people on the show and go, look at these assholes and feel better about your choices in life or at least home decor. That was really mean. But I'm being honest, we all totally get some validation through these shows. And sometimes it's because you make yourself feel better than the assholes who are on the show. But I do find tidying are very charming. I find it pretty useful as well. You know, whereas we might not all have the opportunity to overhaul an entire house or an apartment after we've cleared out all the crap. You know, there are tips that Marie Kondo sprinkles into her show that are immediately applicable. Her major philosophy is to look at everything you own, decide what sparks joy, and get rid of what doesn't. Now, this has met some criticism from people online, especially bibliophiles, who got a bug up their collective asses when it seemed that she was suggesting that people get rid of the books they own. Personally, I saw nothing wrong with that. I like rooting out old books I no longer want. I like donating them to the library because the library uses them in book sales to raise money for themselves, so it's it, it's going to a good cause. I found that folding my clothes using her method actually saved room in my dresser drawers, so there you go. I mean, it's each his own, right? I mean, if you want to hoard yourself with books and have a thousand books in your house and be like, look at my books and post shelf porn of all your books, great. You do that. Like, I'm getting to the point where, like, I have kind of a limit. And I'm like, okay, now I need to pare down. And it can build up and it can pare down again. And, and as long as I'm consuming what I'm buying, I don't see an issue with it. And I can get rid of the stuff that I know I'm not going to really need again or I don't want to pass on or, or, you know, or I didn't like. You know, sometimes you buy books and you don't like them and you feel like you're wasting your money. Now, at the top of the show... I mentioned that there was a YouTube video series that was also a bit of an inspiration. It's called Curiosity Incorporated. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take another break and I'm going to come back with my thoughts on that show as well as my own endeavor. So, stick around. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo Akachin figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. 
You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at 2TrueFreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the 2 True Freaks Network. Duh. So the trailer you just heard is for Garage Sale Gloat. It is a Two True Freaks podcast. Um, And I have to give credit where credit is due because, you know, that's also an inspiration I didn't mention at the top of my show. But but I've been been listening to that show since it started and following it. And and they go through – it's really cool to see what they they pick up and, and, and hear about them. And all the things they go through when they're uh, when they're garage selling, and and I, I can't wait for the new season to start again. But anyway, on the podcast Facebook group a couple of months ago, uh, Dario Gonzalez, who is a frequent guest of the show, at least maybe I guess semi annual guest, he, he pops up every once in a while because he doesn't live in the same town as uh, Chris Honeywell and Scott McGregor, who are the regular hosts. So anyway. A couple of months ago, Dario posted uh, a link to the first of what, as of this writing, is like 15 videos from the YouTube channel Curiosity Inc. This is a series filmed by Alex Archibald, who is the owner of an antique store in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And he documents all the things he finds and buys for his store. So back at the beginning of 2019, he went into what was originally termed a hoarder's house. After walking around the house for a while, uh, decided not just to take things from it, but buy the house outright. So over the course of these 15 videos, he's cleared out a ton of stuff, and he's uncovered the life, the art, and the legacy of Mary Borkstrom, a potter who had gained some national renown in Canada during the 20th century. The videos are now all available on YouTube, and I'll I'll link to them in the show notes, and I'll link to, to Garage Sale Gloat as well. But over the course of the series, he cleans out the house, he sits down, and he interviews Mary, who unfortunately, uh, as of this recording, recently passed away. And he begins doing a pretty extensive renovation and remodeling. He does it in a way that's... You don't feel like it's exploiting the situation or that he's being mean-spirited or snarky he's not chiding anyone for whatever mental issues that might have led to the hoarding in fact as he uncovers more and more about mary and finds more and more about the house um he genuinely seems to want to not only get to know her but feels obligated to create and preserve whatever legacy of hers that he can early on it goes from being called the hoarder's house to the potter's house because of that and and you know, it's this issue of legacy that I have been thinking about. We have our perceptions of ourselves and the perceptions of us others have of us. And with Mary Borgstrom, you wind up at first, it's, you know, it's an old woman who, um, and I believe at the beginning that, I don't know if it was implied whether or not he knew she was alive or not, but the family had sold the house to him. And you go into this video, in the first video or so, the first couple of videos, you're like, oh, wow, look at all this crap. And he, you're like, what is he going to find? What is he going to find? What is he going to find? And as he uncovers this pottery and starts looking into her, your perception of her changes from crazy old lady who hoarded a bunch of stuff to artist, renowned artists, like brilliant artists. Like what is, you know, and, and I mean, you don't even get interested that much in why the latter part of her life in that house was all the stuff. You know, you 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 become interested in the house itself and watching them like, you know, do the this old house part of it, which is just it's fascinating to me. I'm I suck with tools and I'm just like 
this is this is amazing. But then you also like are like, okay, you know, look at, look at these, this guy who's doing a genuinely nice thing for this person. In fact, he set up a, an online auction in Canada to sell a bunch of her pottery, and I believe half the proceeds were going to the renovation and eventual sale of the house, and the other half was going to go to her estate or her family. So, again, like, it's you, you rarely see genuinely nice things like that on the internet, especially lately. And so I've been thinking about this issue, and I've been thinking about legacy or, and how our, our perceptions of ourselves and the perceptions other have of us. Now, I grew up in a very white, very middle-class suburb where, on some level, showing off what you have or how much you have was kind of the accepted norm. You know, lawns were well-kept. People in my school could afford mall-level brand-name clothes. There was an air of comfort I say this not to lament my upbringing or feel guilty about it, but to just acknowledge the privilege from which I come or came. That attitude and that attention to such things is pretty well ingrained, and I do still enjoy a certain level of that comfort. And I don't feel too guilty about having worked to achieve that or my wife having worked to achieve it. That being said, I just don't know if I really need all of this stuff. And I think you're allowed to feel feel that way. You know, I think you're allowed to be like, you know, I, I worked hard to obtain what I have and and uh, maintain what I have and, and, and have a level of comfort. But you could also look around and say, you know, maybe I have a little too much and not feel guilty of it, not feel like you're, you're being some sort of bad person in the world for having it, but just feeling when enough is enough. So that's why I went with the uncollecting. Every so often, some of the comics podcasts I listen to get on the topic of how taxing the hobby can become, and a number of us have been reading comics for, like, decades at this point, and we've been collecting comics for decades, and for others, it's not comics, it's toys, it's something else, it's just collecting. And the issue that comes up, they're financial, but also issues of space and strain on your life in general. My comics collecting has, over the years, ebbed and flowed based on what I could afford, and I think everybody else's has. I mean, we all become adults at some point, and we do have to put aside you know, money for shit like a mortgage instead of, you know, 50 variant covers of Detective Comics 1000 or something. But then, you know, there's a lot of us who do look around at what we have and we wonder when it might be time to pare it all down. There's only so much space these things can take up. As you get older, you do start to think about who this is going to be left to. Who's going to be clearing all this crap out after you're gone? And it hits close to home because it's what we wound up doing after my grandmother passed away back when I was in high school. But I think what's finally gotten to me this time is the feeling that I have to compete with other collectors and fans. And I know it's my own bullshit, but I feel pretty, I fell pretty hard into the mentality that you were somehow better than someone else if you knew more about a character or had more toys from a particular toy line. It's something I've seen in a number of other circles. Sports fans get like this, by the way, like really, really badly, especially if you're a woman. Anyway, and I've ranted. I think I actually did rant about this on a Festivus episode. But seriously, it's been a huge motivator this year. I I can't say that I'm completely cured. I mean, it's only April. But I have to say that I've really begun to question what has always driven me to wonder if I have to measure up in some sort of way. You know, as if there's a rubric for collecting in fandom and I need to make sure I always get an A or else I'm not going to be taken seriously. Again, I know that's bullshit. But because there's no need to compete with other fans. You know, like you don't have to... You know, like, all the fans that I that I relate to on a, on a regular basis, like, are all really, really nice. And we give each other a hard time about stuff, but, like, it's never that sort of, like, you know, 
dick measuring that can go on in in some circles. And and you do have to wonder at some point if maybe with those people, not the nice people, but these the dick measurers, does a love of stuff exceed the fandom? Like when, because I think when that happens, you have to make a choice between the two. I mean, maybe you don't. It's conjecture on my part, really. But as I personally saw these piles of unwatched, unread, unlistened to things, I decided to more or less evaluate if they were worth it. I haven't had a chance to watch a lot of movies on my list. That really is for the summer. We'll have a lot more alone time and I can throw in a movie with breakfast or something. Books and comics, though, are more accessible and fluid because I can just sit down with them in front of the television and I can work my way through them. What's really been cool about the comics, by the way, is how not only am I making my way through entire runs or entire series that I collected and set aside, but I'm also reading the few random issues of random titles that I own, and it's almost like going to the comic store or the stationery store where I used to get comics, uh, picking up what looks interesting and then making a judgment from there. I just read three random issues of Quasar this week and did so without getting any context from the internet. It was actually refreshing and kind of reminded me of back in the day when I grabbed, say, a random Superman book from the racks and read it without knowing anything about what happened in previous issues. And in this age of previews and internet spoilers, it's something a lot of us have lost, so to refine that joy was pretty cool, I must say. And it's pretty cool that I've been able to find time on a pretty daily basis to read. I haven't t- completely taken myself off of social media or screens, but there are some evenings where I just plop myself down with a comic or book or something and have the phone plugged in elsewhere, and it feels good. Granted, there are nights where I'm on Twitter until 11 o'clock. This was not perfect, but it's a start. I've got mornings down. My morning ritual includes reading part of a book before tuning into the weather and then practicing some mindfulness through a meditation app. And then I go read the Washington Post if I feel like it while I'm eating breakfast. And mindfulness, by the way, it's a whole other topic. It's a whole other part of this uncollecting business. As someone who's been paying a lot more attention to my own mental health, specifically to issues surrounding anxiety and how I handle that anxiety, the idea of being mindful or at least deliberate about going through the day has become pretty prominent this year. I plan on writing more about this. All right, I have been writing about it, but not anything for uh, public consumption. I just plan, I just write it in a journal, but I plan on exploring this more publicly in the coming months. To close this place out, I will say that this is not a perfect method. It's not even fully working for me, and I think I'm going to tweak things here and there as this project goes on, especially when it comes to the review stuff. It's I didn't realize how overwhelming writing so many reviews of so many comic books can be. Um, there's definitely nothing KonMari about this. I mean, I take forever to get through everything, and Marie Kondo usually has you make decisions about what to keep while you're out there on the spot. But it's a work in progress. The site is in, in its current form, um, and all the reviews are there because I at least wanted something up there. As I move forward, like I said, I keep thinking about how it's going to look and evolve over time, especially as I get closer to my goals, maybe make new goals, maybe see what else I can do. So um, you can go to the uncollecting.com. You can follow me. I also have a Twitter account set aside for it where all I really do is just post links to um, so far what I'm posting on there, which is at the uncollecting. And what I'm going to do right now is take a quick break and I'll be back because I've got some listener feedback. So please stick around. You like cheap comic books, right? 
Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. All right, I have a little bit of listener feedback that I've been meaning to get to first on the previous episode, which is about 1995. There were a couple of comments about the length of the episode, and I do need to start perhaps considering a shorter runtime with stuff like that, maybe cutting the episode in half. Um, I do know that episode 99 is going to have to be one episode in its entirety because the next episode is 100, and I have something very specific planned for episode 100. So my apologies to people listening to this, to episode 99, a few episodes from now, if it's a long one. But in the future, I really do think keeping episodes with guests to under two hours or maybe in that 90-minute range is a good idea. I do tend to do a halfway decent job of keeping my solo shows within the hour time frame. And uh, I think when you hit that point, that's a, that's a pretty solid, that's a pretty solid runtime. I do have a couple of uh, comments, though. J. J. David Weeder uh, of many uh, shows here and there, Dave's Daredevil Podcast, for instance, commented, this was a fun episode, but I did have a bit of a panic attack when I thought you were going to play the complete 11-minute version of Fantasy. It's not a bad song, but I wasn't in the headspace for that. He also said that the movie Heat was released in 1995. If you haven't seen it, Pacino eats at the scenery with Gusto, and De Niro is basically De Niro, but then they share a scene together. It's one of the best things Michael Mann ever brought to the screen. Um, I've never seen Heat, by the way. It's just, there, there's a there's a slew of movies I just never got around to seeing them. And starting in the 90s, they really do taper. Like, a lot of the big ones do start to be like, oh, I really should watch this at some point. So by getting through all these movies, I can start adding other movies to the queue. Amanda actually did comment on Dave's comment, and she said, I personally thought the fantasy remix interlude was a little long as well. It doesn't get amazing until she starts singing, and they're both right. Um, I think at that point in editing, I wanted to drop it in there, but I was being a little sloppy. What I probably should have done was walked away from editing for a little while and come back, um, which is something I need to get better at, especially with long episodes, because then I'm a little more fresh. I should have just grabbed something from the middle of the song where she was singing, given it about, what, 20 seconds or so, and then and then come back in. And just again, I have a tendency to fall asleep during the editing process, sometimes literally. On episode 94, uh, this is my episode about the day the music died, Robert Ward, scholastic book buddy of the required reading with Tom and Stella cast, commented, Growing up, my dad had certain cassettes that he always played in the car. Buddy Holly, Beach Boys, and Roy Orbison. As such, Buddy Holly has always been an important musical figure to me. I can't tell you how many times I've seen the Buddy Holly story. It was another great episode, Keep Them Coming. And then Robert also had a comment about the Festivus 2018 episode. He said that it sounded as if Shag particularly called out Wonder Woman as not 
worth being the subscription fee for the DC Universe. If I'm right, I'm really ha happy to hear uh, the sentiment. I always thought the series only watching it now for the first time and not enjoying it. I really liked the first season, but the second took a sharp nosedive immediately. Part of me doesn't even have faith to come back and watch the final. I love Linda Carter, but the stories are terrible and it's not worth watching her kick ass when everything else is floundering. I love the show for the nostalgia, but I'm saying the DC app expense isn't worth it month to month just for access to shows like that. Now, I know that in the time that since this comment, uh, DC has announced, and I believe they're just about to make available thousands of comics on the app, kind of like a Marvel Unlimited capacity. It's actually enticing. It's something I may consider later in the year, or at least after I've done enough to justify the additional expense. I also think that I I have a Kindle. It's not available through the Kindle. I'd have to jailbreak the Kindle to do it. I tried to do that with the Marvel Universe app, and it didn't work. Maybe I did it wrong or what. I don't know. Um, so I may like bite the bullet and upgrade to something like an iPad for it. But again, that's, that's down the line. It's still kind of annoying that I, I would have to jailbreak my Kindle to get the DC Universe app, by the way. It's like, Amazon, get your shit together and just offer up things that are available on Android. You know? Anyway... That'll do it. <laughs> Not really a down note, just kind of a complaint. But um, thank you for, for coming along with this to me. Again, go to theuncollecting.com. Uh, it is updated at least a couple of times a week with new stuff. Um, I'm going to have new stuff on the blog in the coming weeks, a couple of, of hosts about random popular culture stuff, as is the way things go around here. And when I come back uh, later in May for the next episode, I will have an episode about something I've written actually quite a lot of it on the blog over years commercials so you can find me on twitter at pop f that's a at p-o-p-a-f-f -F. uh you can find me at popcultureaffidavit.com and don't forget like i said it's like the third or fourth time i mentioned it but the uncollecting.com that's what i was talking about today so as always thanks for listening and take care Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Yeah.